for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Good morning. Are you enjoying this lovely British weather? Yes. Well, some of you are. Um, it's gorgeous. I, I trust you do love the seasons. And yet you do take opportunity to thank God, engage with God in this great big world that he created. I go around and I say, thank you, Lord, for those colors, those leaves changing color. Thank you, Lord, for the, the different seasons that we find ourselves in. And uh, just, just rejoicing in God. It's, it's great. He's, you know, you can worship him out there as much as you can in here, can't you? And um, as we were singing earlier, oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works your hands have made. And uh, our, it causes our, our souls to sing out in praise to God for the marvellous creation. I, I saw a, 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 one of those demos on the internet the other day, sort of matching Earth with other planets and everything else and in the universe, and it says, and so you think you're important. And, and, and uh, it, there's a, there is a sense of truth in that, but actually we are important because God made this place for you and I, and he made us in his image to enjoy our fellowship with him. So... We have a great God, and he is worthy of praise. So if you'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to read again from the New Living Translation, partly because it's not so tight, and and therefore it will come across uh, a a little bit better as I read from it. So you may just want to sit and listen to it if you've got another version, because you'll probably find that the words are in slightly slightly different order. Okay, and and that is just to make a bit more sense of it. So it's not so tight as your ESV or which I would normally use, or HCSB, or whichever one, NIV, whatever you've got. Um, it's, it's a good translation, and, uh, but it just reads better, and I think you'll get a better feel for uh, what it's saying. So, I mean, it's a challenging one. So we're looking at encountering God in the church, uh, conflict resolution, uh, God's way. And uh, so let's just read the chapter and hear what it has to say to us. Just listen to the word of God for a moment, because I just want to feel the dynamic of what is going on here. We've, we've already gone through chapters 1 to 5, and we come to this one. When, when one of you has a dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? Exclamation mark. Don't you realize that someday we believers will, will judge the world? And since you're going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. If you have legal disputes about such matters, why go to outside judges who are not respected by the church? I'm saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who is wise enough to decide these issues? But instead, one believer sues another, and that right in front of unbelievers. Even to have such lawsuits with one another is a, is a defeat for you. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and, and cheat even your fellow believers. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. 
Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise from the dead by his power, raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never! And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say, the two are united into one. But the person who's joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Father, as we look into this passage, written by Paul to the church many years ago, help us as we seek to understand it today. Help us by your Holy Spirit to to hear the word of God and to let it go deep into our own hearts and lives that we might be the people that you call us to be in our generation. Lord, you're about building a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Lord, we want to be a glorious church. We want to be a city set on a hill. We want the line to shine as brightly as it possibly can through our lives. And so, Lord, as we just look at this passage, Holy Spirit, break the bread of life to us. Lord, root out that which shouldn't be there and put in that which needs to be there, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm sure that you're all familiar with the words, I'll see you. They're popular words. I was in the shop uh, just yesterday getting some bits and pieces, and I was actually bending down, and, and uh, what I needed was, uh, was right at the back under the shelf. So I was bending right down under to get these things out, and uh, an old gentleman came along and, and nearly knocked me with his trolley. Uh, and uh, and I, I sort of stood up and he said, oh, I, I, I didn't hit you, did I? I said, no, it's all right, you didn't hit me. And then we went on to talk about this very thing. And he said, you know, how you get people ringing up and, and, and uh, saying, you know, you've probably had something happen somewhere and, uh, and you can probably get some money. And that's the kind of culture that you and I are living in today. I'll see you are popular words. We are, we're pestered by telesales people who inform us that we've had an accident. Have you ever, ever, ever had one of those calls? And you think, how did you know that, if you had one? And B, 
if you didn't have one, how, how did you know that I did not not have one or whatever? You know? And it's kind of like weird because they, 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 they say it with such certainty. Oh, the accident that you had the other day. And you think, hang on a minute. Did I have an accident the other day? I'm sure I didn't have an accident the other day. Was something filming me and there was something I missed somewhere? And you can get you know, quite sort of yeah, on the edge about those things. But there's that kind of pressure to sue and that pressure to claim as much as you can when you do so. And things weren't that much different, really, in Corinth. Taking people to court was actually quite popular. Well, now, when you're reading 1 Corinthians, you tend to think, well, things can't get any worse, can they? It starts off pretty difficult, pretty bad. And, and uh, uh, Bob had a, a difficult chapter last week. And you think, surely it can't get any worse. The reality is, it can uh, the wrong-headedness of, of, uh, was that their wrong-headedness was actually thing, was affecting many different areas of their lives. And if, please hear me here. Bad thinking leads to bad practice. Okay? Bad thinking leads to bad practice. Poor theology leads to bad practice. Bad thinking leads to us living in the way that God doesn't intend us to. Poor theology leads to bad practice. And in chapter 6, Paul begins to, to dig deeper into their wrong-headed thinking and alliances. There's something that's going on here. He keeps, he keeps pushing deeper and deeper as he begins to work his way through this letter. And in doing so, he's exposing their lack of wisdom. Now, they claim to be wise. They are claimed, as we said a couple of weeks ago, to be, to be kings. We, we know it. We don't need you. We know how to do life. We know how to do church. And, and, and Paul is actually digging deeper into their supposed wisdom and exposing their lack of wisdom. And uh, so as you look at this, you, you find something quite fasc- fascinating going on here. They, he was exposing their lack of wisdom regarding issues of conflict resolution and the nature and use of their own bodies in this particular chapter. Paul's big thing as he, as he works through Corinthians is about their identity and it's about their calling. It's right there at the front of the letter about the fact that God had called them to be his people and therefore they were holy people because they belonged to him. They had been redeemed and, uh, by the blood of Jesus and they had been gifted with the Holy Spirit. And so his, this is his big thing. It's about their identity. It's about their calling to be different, to live differently in their day and age. And so it also speaks to us. It's a sad fact that some of the research that has been done in the the Western church uh, says that there is actually not a great deal of difference between the way Christians live and the way people live out there in the world. That's an indictment on the church. Because we were called to be a city set on a hill. We were called to be a community that manifested a different way of living. And uh, uh, so here he is, he is challenging them. He is, uh, the big thing is thinking about their identity, the calling to be different. One, they, the way they resolve conflict is the community of believers. Notice here that this is not about criminal matters. Those do belong to the courts which God has also instituted. And we need to remember that. Number two, it is about the ownership and the use of their bodies. And three out of that, both of which have a negative impact on their witness to the world. You know, in many ways, they were just like our modern world, our Western world. And and in reality, there is nothing new under the sun. 
You've only got to read Ecclesiastes to find that. That In actual fact, you can read all of Scripture. You can read books here, there, and everywhere. And you can find, actually, that there is nothing new under the sun. What goes around comes around, as they say. And in this day and age, when we're looking here, when Paul is writing, they were as much self-centered and as self-absorbed as we are in our Western culture. And life revolved around them, life was about them, life was about getting what they could out of it. They were the centre and the circumference of life, and and that was the nature of Corinth, and that was the nature of life that some of those in the church were taking on. And it's not a good way to approach conflict resolution. We need to be able to step back, we need to be able to see the bigger picture and the bigger story of which you and I are a part. There is a danger when you and I get wrapped up in our own little worlds, we become blinkered and the enemy can come in there and he can shut us down into that little world and, and our so-called wisdom becomes skewed as we get wrapped up in this little world of ours and all its problems and issues, etc., etc. Paul puts it all out into a much larger sphere, the sphere of, of God's purposes, the sphere of the kingdom coming, the sphere of the church. And so they were going to court to resolve all sorts of things. And as such, they were bringing shame and reproach upon the name of the very one who had saved them and the very name that they confessed, the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. It's very interesting, actually, when you look at the courts of that particular time. They they weren't in small rooms like ours are today with a a, a very select group of people and and perhaps one or two in in the public rooms. They, They were quite different. They, they, were, they were public, and, and they were corrupt and played into the, the fallenness of humanity. It was about the strong over the weak, the rich over the poor, where you could only sue downwards, you couldn't sue upwards. And that was all about power structures and so on. And, and, and favours and backhanders played a role, resulting in unfair judgments as the wealthy and strong were favoured over the poor and the weak. That was the culture of the day. That is what the Christian church was getting into. And, the, and Paul is picking up on something here that there, there was a division between those who were, if you like, had greater possessions, uh, more access to information, uh, intelligence, if you like, uh, as a, over to the poor and the uneducated. And it was creating a division within the church. And Paul says they they were claiming to be wise. He says, you say you have wisdom. And in actual fact, the chapter begins in in the original, it begins very directly with, dare you, dare you even do this. There is a a strength in in Paul's words here where he he is confronting them in order to change them and to conform them to Christ. And he says, dare you, dare you do this. He says, aren't there, and we've read it there, aren't there enough to decide such things among you? Once again, he's he's exposing their wrong-headedness, the wrong-headedness of their so-called wisdom. And the word wise in in Corinthians is a, a loaded term. And it's frequently used with negative connotation. They they claim to be so wise, and they were proud of it. And that was a contradiction in terms. Wise people generally don't act with pride. There's a contradiction in terms. There's a humility about possessing wisdom. And so 
He says, don't you realize that one day, saints, you, the believers, one day you will judge the world and you will judge angels. He's saying that that will be your responsibility one day. And here you are taking issues to the courts, those public places that are unjust, that treat you unfairly. Those places are about the strong over the weak, the rich over the poor, the educated over the uneducated. It was a symptom of a much larger problem, their failure to recognize who they were. They were not just individuals. They were part of the family of God. And Paul's use of the term brother here is very important. And we read it. Uh, This translation uses the term believers. But when we read down here in verses 5 and 6, it says, I am saying this to to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who's wise enough to decide these issues? But instead, one believer or one brother sues another, and that right in front of unbelievers. That's, That's important that we hear that word brother, because it was unheard of in that culture to sue your own family. And there they were as the family of God, suing one another. That that dishonoured the family in public. And Paul says, this is not right. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. And brothers and sisters in Christ do not go to the courts in order to exercise power and authority over one another, in order to claim rights. In fact, he says, doesn't he? He says, uh, just looking at those words there, as you go down, he says, wouldn't it be better? Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and cheat even your fellow believers. So he's saying, actually, you're doing something wrong. You're doing something wrong. Listen, trials in the courts were about glorifying a winner and humiliating a loser. We need to hear that. That's what trials were about. And in some ways, it's not that much different today. It's about glorifying a winner, humiliating and destroying a loser. Families are about family ties. And the Christian family is such a one. And it's, it, those are ties that we should treasure with all our hearts. By doing what they were doing, they were denying the nature of being the family of God. The fact that God had called them out and joined them together in Jesus and made them brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says, you should be competent to sort out these things. And instead, he says in verse 7, you read it there, even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. He says it's a defeat. To go that way is a defeat for you. Why not just accept injustice? Why not just accept being cheated? Instead, you do wrong and are cheating one another. That's what's going on here. That can happen today. 
Sometimes we, I, I feel sad when I, I go on the internet and I see believers writing all sorts of stuff about fellow believers. People writing all sorts of things about churches. People who have got a chip on their shoulder. Now, I remember researching one particular case where this particular uh, Christian was out there and he was uh, intent on maligning a particular church. And I happen to know that particular church. It's not in this country. And I happen to know it. Now, I did my research and I found out this particular guy was meeting with about half a dozen people with no connections anywhere. That said to me an awful lot. And they were probably people who had issues. It's a sad thing that believers go on the internet and they spill all the stuff that's in their hearts and their minds. Paul says that is not the way to do it. Sit down with your brothers and sisters. And that was the culture of the day. You see, in a family of that, that day, in the family culture, you would never go outside the family to see a member of the family. You would go to the, to the fathers and you would sit down and you, you would share and you would talk and you would get that, that wisdom that comes through, through years of experience. But Paul is saying that we, we don't just have that wisdom, we have the wisdom of God. That we have God with us. He is our Father. And he can speak his wisdom into our lives as we share together. And so he's saying, look, you know, rather be wronged, accept injustice, than going this way. Because actually doing that, you're a loser. We're all losers. And, and here you get these words. He says, don't you realize, verse 9, don't you realize, or don't you know, something that keeps cropping up in this particular, particular chapter, a phrase he keeps using. Don't you realize? Don't you know? In other words, you really ought to, but I'm going to say it for your benefit. You know, ought to know this. Don't you realize that such people will, inherit, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, we've tended to read this next verse as if it's something that's immediately directed into the church, and it's not. It has, a, it has application But the context is this. He's saying, look, don't you realize that when you go outside of the church community, you're going to those who are unsaved. You're going to those who are not made right with God. You're going to those who still live by the fallenness of their their, their natures. Don't you realize that in stepping outside of the family, you're going to people who are, who are, who are living in sexual sin, who, are, who worship idols, who commit adultery, who are male prostitutes and practice homosexuality, who are thieves and greedy and drunkards and abusive and cheap people. None of those people will inherit the kingdom of God. He said, but he says, that's who you're going to. That is the context of this scripture. You're going outside of the family of those who've been saved and made holy because they belong to God. And you're going outside of that family to a people who yet don't know him and therefore do not have the wisdom of God. And it's marked out by their lives. And then he says this, doesn't he? And I love it. He says, verse 11, And such were some of you. Such were some of you. The grace of God is big enough to save anyone. Amen? Amen. The grace of God 
is big enough to save anyone. And when we, need, when we look at that passage, it's very easy for us to separate out individual sins and, and try and rank them in different ways. In God's eyes, sin is sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All need Jesus Christ as Saviour. He is the way into the kingdom of God. And and Paul says here, you were like that once, such were some of you, but, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Wow. If Paul was here, he'd say the same. Such were some of you. I love buts. Because they change things, don't they? But, such were some of you, but, praise God for his great love, his mercy and his grace made known to us in Jesus. Let me ask you this morning, do you know him as your saviour? Do you know him in that personal way that we've been singing about and talking about this morning? Do you know what it is to be cleansed, to be made new in Jesus Christ? And to know that you are in the kingdom of God and you you have this hope within you and that you know that God is your Father. You can can know him this morning before you go out of this building. In fact, even now, you can be responding to him in your heart. It doesn't require a lot of knowledge or technical know-how, but just to respond to the fact that God is here. He is present this morning. He is speaking this morning. And if you don't know him, he's saying to you, I love you. I love you. And I gave my son for you. That was the extent of my love. I have shown my love for you in Jesus Christ. He has taken all all of your sin, all that was wrong about you, all that separates you from me, and he has paid the price for that sin on the cross. He has risen again. He is alive today. Call on his name. That's the simplicity of the gospel. We live in a world where we we get offers, don't we? Free offers. And you look at the free offers and we all know that there's some, some, some little writing somewhere that clarifies what the free offer is. Isn't that right? Uh, and, And the devil will say to you, actually, there's some little writing you're missing somewhere. There isn't. That's the nature of the gospel. The free offer is as good as it is. Hallelujah. And it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Hallelujah. It's not about trying to be good. You will never be as good as God wants you to be. But it's about him coming into our lives and transforming us and making us new people. And and Paul says, yeah, this church at Corinth, they, outside of Christ, they were a mess. They were a mess. Inasmuch as the world is a mess, but God has saved you. He has cleansed you. He has made you new. Such were some of you, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Wonderful. Wonderful. And when that's the case, we are then born into a family. Born into a family of which he is the father. Born into 
expressions of that family, such as we have here. Places where we can seek out the wisdom of God, the counsel of God for our lives. There are so many lives out there that are being ruined because they don't know where to go. Don't know where to go. The wisdom of this world is empty. It can take you so far that it can't get you any further. But the wisdom of God that's found in, in, in the church, in the family of God, as we seek to listen to the voice of the Spirit, as we, we dig into this, this book, the Bible, the Word, we, we find it speaks to us and enables us to be the people of God that he calls us to be in our generation. So there's some questions there when you look at that. The questions that, you know, of, of motivation. What was the motivation? Was it motivation of love or revenge? Is it about me or the community? Is the aim unity and peace or vindication? They're good questions to ask ourselves. Whenever we feel like going down that route, of going to court, of, of claiming our rights in a world where everybody else wants to say, yeah, Make every effort to claim your rights. And then you move on to the second half of the scripture, and you think, what's Paul doing here? He's, he's now jumped, hasn't he? And, and he suddenly move on, moves on. He says, you say, I'm allowed to do anything. I can do, I can do anything. And Paul, again, is still dealing with their, their so-called wisdom, the issue of who they are and how they should be living. So he's been talking about them as a family, and now he's, been, he's talking about them themselves, their bodies and how they understand themselves. And, and they were saying, look, you know, I've got the right to do anything. Isn't that a familiar phrase? You know, all those adverts you see on television that say, oh, you're wonderful. As if the world revolves around you. You know, I have the right to do everything. Freedom. You know, self-loving, selfish saying that represented again an elitism in the church that was wrong and divisive. Why? Because it was only those who were prosperous and educated who could do anything they wanted. The poor couldn't. And so, again, it was, Paul was challenging a division that was existing in the church of, of those who were educated and had money, had resources, uh, over those who didn't. And he was challenging this division. And he's saying it's wrong and it's divisive. Listen, the nature of unlimited freedom for one means the subversion of the other. The subservience of the other. How many of you have ever watched The Good Life? Have you ever watched The Good Life? It kind of seems idyllic, doesn't it? But it always amuses me that there you you have them. What were their names again? Tom and Barbara. Tom and Barbara. And, you know, lots of, lots of people aspire to being Tom and Barbara's. If only I could get out of this world, of this rat race I'm in. If only I could just, you know, just, just not have to go to work every Monday. If only I just could, you know, have a nice big patch of garden I could plough up and I could have pigs in. If only I could, you know, just, just be free. Yeah? But have you ever noticed about, about them, Tom and Barbara... They can't do without their neighbours. <laughs> Isn't that right? 
Have you ever noticed that? I've always thought that was amusing. There they were claiming to be free, but they can't do without their neighbours. They can't have their freedom without being able to go around to their neighbours and say, oh, do you mind if we have a bath? Our, 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 our electric's off or something, and we, we, we can't do anything about it. Can we borrow your bath? And it's, it's a strange world, this concept of freedom, isn't it? There is, let, me, let me say this. There is no such thing for, for us as what we might call ultimate freedom. Absolutely. And yet there's a world out there that is continually pressing for that kind of freedom whereby I can just live and do what I want. The answer is no, you can't live and do what you want. Society would break down. It would fall apart. If we all, just imagine, if you or everyone here after this meeting said, well, I'm free, I can do what I want. So the next traffic light you see, you decide to drive through it. Uh, why should I look at a red traffic light? Vroom. Throttle down straight through it. Just imagine the chaos that would exist. So ultimate freedom is not there for you and I. Paul says very clearly that you know we're either slaves to unrighteousness or we're slaves to holiness. And that's the nature of life. So the nature of unlimited freedom for one means the subservience of the other. And so you look at this and you begin to think, hang on a minute, where is he going here? So he's challenging this this concept, which again was uh, there in that day and age of of the right to do anything. And then he goes on and he says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then he gets to sex. And you think, how on earth does Paul get from food to sex? How does he do that? Well, the reality is that food and sex in in the Corinthian world went together. It was about the dinner parties, uh, where sexual immorality was part and parcel of the dining experience. And some of the Corinthians were the Corinthians who'd been saved were 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 still involved or getting involved in some of some of that. And so that's what it's about. So we can read it this way. He says, you know, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, and then the parallel is this. Okay. Sex for the body, and the body for sex. That's where he's going with it. That's what he's working out of that. In other words, I can have what I want, when I want, how I want. After all, all things are permissible. We're free, and it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. It's only a body, and it will be destroyed one day. Isn't that, again, so symptomatic of our own culture eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die so what I do in this body doesn't matter even for the Christians they were, they were buying into a philosophy of thinking which said actually the spirit is everything but the body will just pass away and he challenges that and you look at those words there if you move down a little bit further He says in verse 13, you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. God will raise up from the dead by his power. God will raise us up from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. So he's talking about these bodies that we have. They thought, That will be the end of them, so it doesn't matter. Paul says, no, it does. 
He says, your body was given to you by God. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. When you look in the mirror next time, tell yourself that. We can grumble about our bodies an awful lot, can't we? As we get older, we get aches and pains and things happening that we never expected to happen when we're 40 years old or younger. And, uh, and uh, we can get very sort of grumpy about our bodies, but God has given us our bodies. Our bodies are important. Jesus came and he took on real human flesh. And he went down into a real death. And he rose again. And Paul, Paul says, look, he says, you know, and God will raise us from the dead by his power as he raised our Lord from the dead. And he wants us to understand that. You see, he's correcting their thinking. Oh, what I do in the body doesn't matter because that will be the end of it. He's saying, no, your body is important. God made you whole, body, soul, and spirit. So we do need to look after our bodies. Look after them. Take care of them. And look at this, verse verse 13, is that? Verse 13, 15. Don't you realize, once again, don't you know that your bodies are actually part of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united in one. But the person who's joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. It's good just to stop sometimes and say, I am part of Christ. We've already had that come out this morning, in the sense that we are a body. We're members one of another. And then lastly, as we, we draw into this, he says, you know, run from sexual sin. Run from it. And we could do a, a lot more on that, but some of that is coming up in one or two other chapters, so I won't spend any time there. But just to hear his words, he says, run, in a couple of the versions. Flee in another version. He says, escape in another version. And so that's what Paul is saying. Look, with your bodies, run from sin. Run from sexual immorality. Run from pornography. Turn off that TV screen. Turn off that computer. To get, get rid of those magazines. Because something happens when you give yourself to that that doesn't happen with any other sin. It was as serious then as it is now. It's as serious now as it was then. Our bodies are important. Our minds are important. Our spirit is important. We belong to the Lord. And then he says this. He says, don't you realize? Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you, don't you realize that? Don't you realize that? Your body. Not just your, your spirit, spirit, soul, or however you want to do that kind of thing, but your body itself. Your physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The very dwelling place of God. So when you do those things, Something is happening that is spoiling that. He lives in you. He was given to you by God. You don't belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body.
a statue. 